If you all will please join me in reading today's scripture found in 2 Samuel. After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Anioam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone in his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David, king over the house of Judah. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Menaim. And he made him king over Gilead, and the Asherites, and Jezreel, and Ephraim, and Benjamin, and all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was forty years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And Abner sent messengers to David on his behalf, saying, To whom does the land belong? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring over all Israel to you. And he said, Good, I will make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, that is, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michal, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. Then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife, Michal, for whom I have paid the bridal price of a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, Paltiel, the son of Laetus. But her husband went with her, weeping after her all the way to Baharam. Then Abner said to him, Go, return, and he returned. Just then the servants of David arrived with Joab from a raid, bringing much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David at Hebron, for he had been sent away, and he had gone in peace. When Joab and all the army that was with him came, it was told Joab. Abner the son of Ner came to the king, and he was let go, and he has gone in peace. Then Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why is it that you have sent him away so that he is gone? You know that Abner the son of Ner came to deceive you, and to know your going out and your coming in, and to know all that you were doing. When Joab came out from David's present, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the cistern of Sarah. But David did not know about it. And when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him inside into the midst of the gate to speak with him privately, and they struck him in the stomach so that he died for the blood of Asheel, his brother. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning again. It's good to be with you. Um, Maybe now it doesn't look like you're lip reading virtually. That's good. Um, so I appreciate you all sticking with us on Facebook and YouTube. Uh, thanks everyone for being here. Um, it's good to be with you again. Uh, if you're new, again, welcome. Um, if you've been here and this is more than your first, second, or third time, thanks again for being with us. We really appreciate you being here. Last fall, uh, we began a series on the life of David. And this spring and summer, we're picking that series back up again. And the title of that sermon series in the life of David was called The God After Our Own Hearts. The God After Our Own Hearts. And really the point of that title is to say that David is a king who lived some 3,000 years ago. Yes, that David was certainly a great historical figure. He did some big military and political things in the ancient Middle East. And he lived a life of faith uh, in God that is worth emulating or imitating. But really the story of David is a story of God. It's a story about God, specifically God and the person of Jesus Christ, King Jesus, the greater son of David. Jesus is the kind of king that David in his best days points to, 
full of justice and healing and peace. Jesus is the kind of king that David in his worst days, in his worst moments, also points to and shows us our desperate need for. So last fall, we began with 1 Samuel chapter 16 and the anointing of David as king by God, as the future king of Israel. And so we left off last, roughly end of November, which is almost six months ago, which is crazy. And we left off then uh, with 1 Samuel chapter 30. And there we left the rival and reigning Saul consulting with dead spirits on the dark night before his death in a battle with the enemy Philistines. So the book of 2 Samuel begins with David hearing the news about Saul's death along with Jonathan's death. We might remember that Jonathan was the best friend of David and was the next in line as Saul's firstborn son. And so 2 Samuel uh, chapter one, at the very end, verses 17 through 27, tells us of David's very intense and very public mourning for both Saul and Jonathan. And this scene kind of leads us up to our present scene, our passage this morning in 2 Samuel chapter two and three. But before we kind of step foot into that territory a little bit more, let's pray together um, and ask for God's help in reading his word. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you uh, for your words to us this morning. Uh, Thank you for the opportunity to sit under your scripture and learn from you, to ask ourselves um, what what a a civil war 3,000-ish years ago has to do with my life. Thank you for giving us the courage to ask those kind of questions. But also thank you for giving us the assurance that it has everything to do with our life, that your word is sufficient that your word is sharper than a two-edged sword piercing us to the very marrow. And I pray that you would once again use your word. Would you use your word to convict us? And would you use your word to comfort us? Would you use your word by your spirit to reach out to us? Jesus, would you find us? Come and find us wherever we are. Maybe we're reaching out for you. Maybe spiritually we have our arms crossed. I pray that you would meet us. And Lord, would you help us to see you, Jesus, high and lifted up, believable and beautiful, more so to the eyes of our hearts. Would you do this work for us, Jesus? In your name we pray, amen. So it was the sophomore year for me in high school, and I was in the middle of a very heated and several days long argument. It was an argument over something that had already happened 80 years before. I'm gonna explain that. So in my 10th grade American history class, we were reenacting the Treaty of Versailles. That's the treaty that uh, the Allies and the Germans, uh, sorry, the Allies negotiated uh, a peace with Germany after World War I. And my teacher and soccer coach, Mr. Tong, had given us each individual roles or responsibilities to to reenact this treaty. And so my friend John played the American president, Woodrow Wilson, and two other students played the French prime minister and the Italian prime minister. And I was to take on the role of the British prime minister, Lloyd George. And we were given these goals that kind of our grades depended on to make it interesting. For instance, I had to convince everybody that... um, to agree that Germany's war reparations, their payment plan would include British pensions and widow's funds, and also there'd be no standing Navy. That's just a taste of what we were negotiating over. Um, Anyway, I just kind of remember several days of negotiations, heated negotiations that kind of spilled out of the history classroom and into the hallways 
and even into recess sessions of the biology lab for a few of us. It went well beyond a grade for these few of us. We, I kind of personally started to deeply feel the British people's World War I pains and kind of post-World War I strength. I felt it in my 16-year-old hormonal bones. I was very fired up. And in the name of justice, I wanted revenge. I likely didn't understand at the time, even as I passionately re-argued an already decided peace treaty, by the way. But then and right now, we all live in a world full of inequalities. A world where relationships are unequal, circumstances are unequal, strength and power and authority are unequal and unbalanced. And the question becomes, how do we deal with this reality? How do we deal with unequal situations politically as citizens of a nation? How do we deal with unequal situations and unequal relationships personally as individuals, whether we're on the job or in the classroom or in families or in the church or even on the soccer sidelines? In these two chapters near the beginning of 2 Samuel, we see these same kind of inequalities of power and strength play out before us and they are vivid. And there is power shifts going on and they end in violence. From this story in 2 Samuel chapters two and three, we can collect two pieces of wise counsel. And each of these wise actions is sort of supported and motivated by an unchanging truth about Jesus. First, we need to develop the honesty to deal with reality as it is and not as it should be, especially when it comes to power dynamics. We've got to develop the honesty to deal with reality as it is, not as we want it to be, especially when it comes to power dynamics. Second piece of wisdom, we need to learn to lead with intentional vulnerability. We need to learn to lead with intentional vulnerability. Oh, literally a willingness to risk hurt whether we're the strong one or we're the weak one. And here's the truth about Jesus. The way we can be this kind of honest, this kind of vulnerable is because Jesus entered the world as it is to save us as we are by getting intentionally vulnerable. A vulnerability that led Jesus to be crucified on a cross for us. And so 2 Samuel chapters two and three give us four pictures of strength and weakness, vulnerability and invulnerability that neatly map into our sermon outlines four points this morning. So we're gonna look at first, 2 Samuel chapter two, verses one through four, David demonstrates weakness with vulnerability. Second point, chapter two again, verses eight through 10, this time Abner demonstrates weakness, but without vulnerability. Third, chapter three of 2 Samuel, we look at verses one and then verses 12 through 16. David again demonstrates, but this time he's strong. He demonstrates strength with vulnerability. And then fourth and finally in 2 Samuel chapter three, verses, one, uh, verses two, 22 through 27, we see Joab and Joab demonstrates strength without vulnerability. Before we begin chapter two, verses one through four, and this kind of concept of what it looks like to be weak with vulnerability, 
I did just want to acknowledge that my outline and some of the, the points that I'm about to speak about this morning are influenced by a book by Andy Crouch called Strong and Weak. You can look it up. There's a really great sort of four-part four graph on strength and weakness, which is helpful. When we look at the condition of ancient Israel in 2 Samuel chapter 2, we see the weakness immediately. The Philistines in the West have just overrun central Israel, and they've overrun central Israel all the way from the coast of the Mediterranean to the river of the Jordan. Meanwhile, Israel's reigning king Saul is dead, and three of his sons, including the next in line, Jonathan, are also dead. But instead of this being kind of a moment to come together as a nation under the rightful kingship of, of David, the south and the north of Israel split. They split along tribal lines, that is family allegiances. Southern Israel or Judah goes with their own, one of their own, David. The northern Israel, after some hesitation, goes with one of their own, Ishbosheth, the only surviving son of Saul. And once again, ancient Israel has two kings. What's the problem with two kings? One too many. It's one too many of <laughs> two kings. And so for David, who has lived like this hunted down refugee in the desert wilderness for decades, just hoping for his chance to finally rule Israel uncontested, to at least not be hunted down by the political machine of the, of the, of the reign of Israel, there has to be some mix here, a mix of both despair, but also surprisingly resolve. It reminds me of that writer of Western novels, Louis L'Amour, and he puts it really beautifully. There will be a time when we believe everything is finished. That will be the beginning. There will be a time when we'll think everything is finished and that's gonna be the beginning. That must be what it felt like to David at that moment, and maybe in our lives right now, beginning again. And so in verse one, David honestly saw his nation's weakness. He saw his own weak, weakened position, but look at how he responds. David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. And David said, to which shall I go up? And he, the Lord said, to Hebron. Look, we know from personal experience, it takes a lot of vulnerability to ask for something, doesn't it? Perhaps especially it takes some vulnerability to ask for advice, to even from God. It's vulnerable to confess with a question that we don't know what we should be doing. And it's a vulnerable feeling to let someone weigh in on what we should be doing. But verses two and three tell us that David is not merely asking God for his advice. He's asking for his directions directions that David will follow no matter what and at great personal expense. He's taking all of his household. He's taking all of his family. He's taking all of his fighting men with him to Hebron. So David is courageously choosing to put himself out there and at the Lord's discretion and not his own. And then verse four tells us an additional vulnerability. David has to ask his kinsmen, the men of Judah, to let him set up his kingdom there with all of the dangers of a civil war brewing and in the air. And thankfully, the men of Judah agree and we're told that they 
anoint David as king over them for seven and a half years. But David's example prompts us with a helpful set of questions. There's kind of a couple of questions that go together. How do you handle your own weakness? How do you handle your own weakness? And how do you handle other people's strength? How do you handle your own weakness? And how do you handle other people's strength? Are we willing to be vulnerable in those kind of situations? Are we willing to put ourselves out there? So for instance, how do you, how do I handle God's strength relative to our weakness, right? Am I willing to ask him? Am I willing to ask him not just for advice, but for directions for my life? And will I commit to following those directions? How do we handle situations where we are weaker than someone else? Are we willing to ask teachers? Are we willing to ask parents for help? Boss, are we willing to ask bosses for guidance on a project that's difficult that we've been delegated? Or how about our cultural moment? If you're a Christian here this morning, you likely feel like you're on the weaker side of a heated argument. What would it look like to be vulnerable? To ask more questions, to put ourselves out there, to ask people what they really mean when we're afraid. When we're afraid that we know what they really mean and we disagree. Or to ask, how did you personally get to that place? To that place of anger or certainty, of fear or conviction. We can actually be this bold. We can be this vulnerable because in the words of commentator Dale Davis, it's no trifle when the God's chosen king begins to reign. It's no trifle when the God's chosen king begins to reign. And look, yes, I understand it can feel like Jesus and his kingdom are in the Hebron stage in our life, right? It's one of 12 tribes in the hill country. It's really the kingdom of God can feel like a backwater HQ. Mustard seed, right? A mustard seed in low tide times during small days and a worldwide church that feels like it's peeking out from under a worldwide pandemic amid a civil war of political opinions. But the gospel announces this everlasting truth. Jesus, it's he who reigns. And the mustard seed, it's growing. <laughs> it's growing like a weed. Actual justice, final peace, physical and spiritual healing are going forth. They are flowering. These longings have begun to blossom here and now, even as Jesus' kingdom is visibly and invisibly spreading forth. But sometimes our desire for the power to make things just and peaceful or just plain better, especially for ourselves. These desires can lead us into a dishonest assessment of reality and poor choices about how we respond to our weakness. And this is what Abner does in verses eight through 10. And there's a second main point. What does weakness without vulnerability look like? Abner, who was Saul's cousin and chief commander under Saul, 
He knew what Saul had confessed to David to his face throughout 1 Samuel. David was the true and rightful king of Israel. In 2 Samuel chapter 3, Abner even confesses this to even, he tells Ishbosheth and the elders of Judah that yes, God had promised David the throne of Israel. <laughs> but instead of bowing the knee and asking for mercy or even asking for a position in the new royal cabinet of David, Abner took Ishbosheth the son of Saul, and he made him king. Verses eight and nine. Abner takes instead of asks. He despises weakness. He wants to demand of others. He wants to be a king maker. He doesn't want to be demanded of and be a peacemaker. And if we're honest, we understand Abner's motives. We live in a world that valorizes strength and despises and fears weakness. But ironically, denial of our weakness, whether that's the present form or future form, it's not a winning strategy. I appreciate the way that sociologist Tressie Cotton puts the, our fear of physical weakness in a recent interview. She says it this way, the thing is, it's not about who is disabled, but when are you going to become disabled? We will all be disabled at some point in our life. And so much middle-class consumption and our obsession with health and wellness is about that. We're terrified of becoming in any way disabled or differently abled. We're just so vulnerable to nature and time and biology, and we're so terrified of it. And I think this is because we know a lot of what we've built our ideas of who we are on are really more vulnerable than we like to think. That's a really profound accusation, but also confession, isn't it? We live not just in denial, fear of den we live in fear of our biology, of getting sick or getting old. We're afraid of losing our strength and even worse, our abilities, abilities like eyesight and mobility and memory and energy. And this fear pushes us into anger, a specific frustration in the relationships where we feel powerless. I know with God, I can get so tired of asking and prayers turn into unspoken demands so quickly. With teachers and employers, we can get so resentful about grades and promotions. How can they not see how hard I'm working? What an asset I am. With parents, we can start, we can think they're acting so childish. I should be in charge of the finances or the calendar. And politically, they, those despised others, they just don't get it. They're so dumb. Even if, we've, even if you've ever kind of just done premarital or marital counseling with me, you've heard this line, which I stole from someone way smarter than me. And it's this line, taking and criticism Taking and criticism are just bad ways of asking for something. <laughs> Taking and criticism are just bad ways of asking for something. You see, we criticize and we take without asking because we don't want to be vulnerable. Like Abner, we don't want to put ourselves out there. And we don't want to put ourselves in someone else's hands. But the New Testament writer, Paul, just ask him, what it means to be vulnerable. 
God's power is made perfect in our weakness. When I am weak, Paul writes, then I am strong. That's counterintuitive stuff, isn't it? It's also the same kind of stuff that makes up Jesus' resurrection. To conquer death, Jesus had to die. But it's the strength that he had demanded that he let himself be weak. Weak even unto death for us. And not surprisingly, David's strength demands he do likewise. In the beginning of chapter three, David's strength leads him to further vulnerability. Our sermon's third point, point number three. First one lays out David's condition of strength. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. But David isn't the only one who realizes this power shift is taking place. Abner also realizes this power, place, power shift is taking place. And so Abner, after his a tiff with his puppet king Ishbosheth over a woman, in verse 12, Abner sends his messengers to King David asking for a covenant, a peace treaty, and a reconciliation. But David wants to know that Abner is for real, that he's genuine. And David also wants to unite all of Israel. And so he asks his, for his first wife back. He asks for Michal, uh, Saul's daughter. Remember, he had been married to her in 1 Samuel. And he says, you've got to bring her before we even talk, before you can see my face. And so Abner makes sure this happens to the point of commanding her new husband, Paltiel, to go back home in the midst of his weeping over losing his wife. By the way, this like really touching scene that happens in verse 16 makes us think that Abner likely still doesn't get the point of vulnerability at all, right? But when we read David's response to Abner's offer, okay, some of the details we skipped in our reading of scripture this morning, but are in verses 12 through 17 through 21, not in your bulletin. You can look there in the Bible if you have one. When we look at these sort of details, it can feel like just David's a shrewd politician. He's just a really good foreign relations negotiator, right? After all, Dave, Abner on his side means the end of a civil war, right? I mean, that makes sense. But it's really hard to underestimate how personally difficult throwing a feast of reconciliation was, especially for Abner. Granting him immunity or sending Abner off with his David's blessing of peace. All of those personal things must have been so very difficult for David to do, especially when he just heard from Judah's elders that Abner knew all along that God had promised the throne of Israel to David. So at the end of the day, behind the hard-nosed politics, Abner is a man asking another man for forgiveness. In verse 12, and David is a man granting another man, Abner, his forgiveness in verses 20 through 21. And David, who's now in a position of strength, is once again choosing to be vulnerable. He's giving a piece of self, himself away even to his enemy, Abner. He's footing the bill for Abner's crimes against so many. And David's example prompts another set of questions for us. They're related. How do you handle your own strength? How do you handle your own strength? And how do you handle other people's weaknesses? 
How do you handle your own strength and how do you handle other people's weaknesses? Are we willing to be vulnerable? Are we willing to bear another person's burdens in love? For instance, how do you and how do I kind of own or handle God's intentional weakness in the Bible? Right? Do we sort of skip over Jesus' agony in the Garden of Gethsemane or on the cross? Does Jesus' willingness to look foolish in the eyes of the world, look foolish even to us, does that make him dismissible or secretly pathetic to you? How do we handle situations where we're the stronger person? We're stronger than someone else. When someone has shown his or her weakness, whether it's on purpose or just the opposite. I mean, you have a student or an employee who breaks down under the stress in front of you. What do you do with that? You have a friend or a colleague who confesses an addiction or anxiety or depression to you. What do you say? Do you pretend like it never happened? Or do you get low with them and ask them questions and really listen? Or what about someone who's wronged you, a student or a child or a Facebook friend maybe? Will you actually accept their apology instead of brushing it off? Or can you even imagine ever forgiving that insult, their prideful contempt of you? If we're being honest and we're considering the weight of what it means to be strong and vulnerable, we have to ask, how can we be so bold? How can we be so vulnerable? In her memoir, The Hiding Place, Cory Ten Boom describes how her family hid Jewish people during World War II, only to be discovered and sent off to German concentration camps. It's a really intense, beautiful, and horrifying story all at once. But eventually, towards the close of the end of the war, after losing her dear sister, Betsy, Corey Ten Boom is set free. And she realizes there's so much healing work to do, and so she sets off preaching the gospel. And she preaches the gospel to the Germans, which is amazing, <laughs> because she thinks that they have to hear the message of forgiveness the most, and they need it to hear it. But then her most personal moment happens at one of these talks in 1947 in Germany, an officer from the Ravensbrück camp comes forward and all of a sudden the shaming, cruel images of the shower room flood Corey Ten Boom's mind and heart. She sees him again when she recognizes him, but now he's in a blue uniform with a cap and a skull and crossbones emblazoned on it. And the German guard, in his weakness, asks Corey for what feels like an impossible thing. He says, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did at that camp, but I would like to hear it from your lips. Frau Lane, will you forgive me? And what I love about Corey Tenboom is she's honest. <laughs> and she talks about how hard it was. The hesitation there the guard's hand extended in the space between them and her asking, could him asking for forgiveness erase her sister Betsy's death? But then what starts with a wooden mechanical handshake for Corey transforms into something even more beautiful. Corey cries out, I forgive you brother with all of my heart. 
And I love the way that Corey Ten Boom so realistically ex- it reflects back on this experience because it's kind of hard to believe and she kind of has trouble believing it. <laughs> she writes famously, and so I discovered that it's not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing depends, but on his. When God tells us to love our enemies, he gives along with the command, the love itself. When God tells us to love our enemies, he gives along with the command, the love itself. And that's where the power comes from. It comes from God and his gifts, his gift of love. Will we step into that? But our passage this morning ends with someone whose strength, he uses his strength, but he won't forgive in the midst of it. And that's Joab. And so in verses 22 through 27, in chapter three, we see strength without vulnerability, our fourth and final point this morning. And these verses, Joab is in a position of strength, right? Joab is on the winning side of the civil war with David. David is beating the son of this house of Saul and Joab has just come back flush with strength. He's got spoils aplenty and he's come back from a successful raid. But when Joab hears about David's forgiveness of Abner, Joab's blood begins to boil. (laughs) He can hear the anger seething like static in his ears. And Joab thinks to himself, Abner's forgiveness cannot erase the death of my brother, Asahel. Abner had killed Asahel in chapter two of 2 Samuel, but Abner had done it in self-defense on the field of battle. So Joab accuses Abner of treachery to David. And when that doesn't work, Job feels completely powerless. So he takes his strength into his own hands. And according to to verses 26 and 27, Joab sent messengers, likely in King David's words, to Abner to get him to turn around and come back to Hebron. And And Abner, trusting in his immunity, trusting in David's words of peace, comes. But then Joab took him, Abner, aside in the midst of the gate to speak with him privately. And then he struck him in the stomach, with a, likely with a knife or a sword, so that he, Abner, died for the blood of Asahel, his Joab's brother. And so like me, in my high school version of the Treaty of Versailles, and David Lloyd Jones in the actual 1919 version of Versailles, in the name of justice, Joab took revenge. But why did Joab think it was necessary, even justified, to murder Abner so shamelessly? It was because Joab felt weak and threatened by Abner's successes on and off the battlefield. Sadly, the reality was the opposite. It was Joab who was strong, not Abner, right? David was gonna unite the tribes through this this restoration of his marriage to Michal, the daughter of Saul, not a switch of military commanders. He was not intending to move from Joab to Abner. That was not likely except in the mind and heart of Joab. And this is our problem too, isn't it? Our minds and our hearts get like this in our relationships. I'll never forget the way that a Christian counselor, Diane Langberg, once put it. She was talking about the abuse of power, especially in the church, which has been all over the news recently. And she said, we are most dangerous when we don't know that we we are in positions of power. We are most dangerous when we feel weaker and we're not. Abuse happens oftentimes when someone who is stronger 
is acting as if he were weaker or just a peer. This is why we can sometimes act without vulnerability. We can act with vengeful motives towards children and students who are younger and don't know as much about how the world works. And I would guess I'm like you. I tend to fantasize after the fact about the comeback line, the real, the real thing that would skewer an insult. I kind of obsess about the way I want to poke a stick in the spokes of that somebody who just burned me. I get caught up in the, just you wait, just you wait, when I feel most threatened. Whether that's at work or home, in the neighborhood or on campus, and perhaps more and more in the smugly self-righteous comments that I read online or in print. That's how I feel. But in Jesus Christ, God offers us another way forward. God who is everything became nothing just to be with us and to be like us. God who's eternal died so that he could make a treaty of peace and a feast of reconciliation with you. God who is holy in the light of the world laid a dank dark tomb for three days so that in the name of justice, he could extend not revenge, but in the name of justice, he could extend mercy. As most of us know, the vengeance of the actual Treaty of Versailles, of Versailles historically only led to a much more vicious war, World War II. And what was interesting is after the horrors of the Holocaust and Pearl Harbor, the victorious allies after the end of World War II took a page out of David, King David's playbook. They exercised strength with vulnerability. They rebuilt Germany and Japan into the industrialized, successful nations they are to this day. And this begs the question for us to take home and to wrestle with and to live with for a while. What does it look like? What does it look like in our relationships? What does it look like in our cultural moment? What does it look like to put our trust in Jesus, the son of David, and to build our lives on his love? Would you pray with me? Father, thanks for this time. Thanks for these words to us. The ways that it helps us to rethink and reimagine what it looks like to be a Christian uh, robustly and fully in a world full of, uh, of conflict, full of, of seesawing power. And I pray that you would teach us, Jesus, to live more like you. Would, but Lord, we need the power. You can ask it all day, but if you don't, if you don't provide the ability, we're sunk. And we pray that we would step by faith into those moments where we can offer our vulnerability and show forth your love on a cross, your blood poured out for the sins of many. And I pray that that would be the cry of our hearts and that you'd help us to carry some of the thoughts in this passage into our workplaces and into our homes, into our prayer life, and Lord, into the, just the different relationships that we have, whether it's a weekend or a weekday. We ask this, Lord, in your name, Jesus. Amen.